This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. A bombshell dropped in Monday night's January 6th committee hearing when it was revealed that Donald Trump Jr., along with Fox News stars, including Sean Hannity and Laura Ingraham, begged White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows to get the president to make a national address and halt the Capitol riot. According to the records, multiple Fox News hosts knew the president needed to act immediately. They texted Mr. Meadows, and he has turned over those texts. He's got to condemn this shit ASAP, Donald Trump Jr. texted Mark Meadows. The Capitol Police tweet is not enough. Still, President Trump did not immediately act. Trump consigliere Hannity texted, can he make a statement, ask people to leave the Capitol? Ingraham then wrote, Mark, the president needs to tell people in the Capitol to go home. This is hurting all of us. He is destroying his legacy. And Fox and Friends' Brian Kilmeade texted, Please, get him on TV, destroying everything you have accomplished. This week, we got concrete proof that those very Fox News hosts knew the truth, but they still lied to their loyal viewers. The messages were in stark contrast to what the Fox personalities were saying on air. Ingraham, Hannity, and Kilmeade all suggested in the immediate aftermath of the Capitol riot that left-wing activists were responsible for the violence or that America deserved it for subjecting then-President Donald Trump to the Russia investigation. Three of these individuals, Laura Ingram, Sean Hannity, and Brian Kilmeade, went on Fox News. And while they were telling Donald Trump that, that he needed to call off his supporters, they were telling Fox News viewers and the rest of you know, the American public by extension um, that the people that were actually attacking the Capitol were not Donald Trump supporters, but actually, actually secretly Antifa or Black Lives Matter. We knew this would happen when you had a huge group of people descending on Capitol Hill. When you have members of the Trump support organizations and Antifa threatening to show up at the same time, Ingraham exclaimed on January 6th. People who can only be described as antithetical to the MAGA movement. Now, there were likely not all Trump supporters, and there are some reports that Antifa sympathizers may have been sprinkled throughout the crowd. I have never seen Trump rally attendees wearing helmets Black helmets, brown helmets, black backpacks. During his afternoon radio show that afternoon, fucking Sean Hannity agreed with a caller who vehemently insisted that it was Antifa that was behind the mayhem at the Capitol, adding that he had heard these reports that they might even wear MAGA gear and he didn't know who the people are storming the building. And we had the reports that groups like Antifa uh, other radical groups, I don't know the names of all of them, that they were there to cause trouble. I want to explain in detail, if I can, um, what today is is about and why people are feeling the way they're feeling if, to the extent that I think I can. And this is not something that is has happened here. On his primetime show that night, Hannity then said it was possible that it was bad actors from the radical left who infiltrated the mob. We also knew that there's always bad actors that will infiltrate large crowds. I don't care if they're radical left, radical right, I don't know who they are, they're not people I would support. Kilmeade, after saying he did not know Trump supporters that have ever demonstrated violence that I know of in a big situation, then blamed the Russia probe as a key factor in pushing MAGA followers to violence. I just thought the tone 
the attitude of defiance played out in the Capitol, the lack of security stunned me. I do not know Trump supporters that have ever demonstrated violence that I know of in a big situation. I think this is a culmination of four years of them denying that their president won the election, claiming that the Russians flipped votes. This is four years of investigation, four years of a very frustrated electorate, 75 million that voted, the Fox and Friends star fumed. They feel that they have not had their day in court, let alone lost in court. They're gonna do anything, Raymond, to keep that narrative alive of January 6th because, I don't know, if Liz Cheney runs out of space and the GOP's big tent. Why isn't Liz Cheney looking into the 500 plus riots that took place in cities all across the country in 2020? The FBI will infiltrate groups, whether it's the mob or Al Qaeda, and they'll try to be one of them and unwind a pot before it takes place. Right. Do you think maybe, perhaps, and maybe you don't want to give away your series, you find indications that the FBI was actually pushing for this invasion? The latest political charade on Capitol Hill, and that is Nancy Pelosi's January 6th commission. And literally, it has one mission and one mission only. Oh, let's see if we can impeach and smear and slander and uh, Donald Trump one more time. And of course, the GOP one more time on national television. And why is it that every other network, if you took January 6th out of their rundown, they'd have a test pattern? This is well, all exactly. This is all they cover. It's unbelievable. There was certainly a lot of violence that day, but it was not a terrorist attack. It wasn't 9-11. It wasn't the worst thing that ever happened to America. It wasn't an insurrection. The theatrics were intended to produce an emotional reaction. Logic and facts be damned. During the committee hearing, Representative Adam Schiff of California revealed that investigators have also been reviewing text messages that Meadows received from fellow politicians. Before reading them out loud, the congressman said, the committee is not naming these lawmakers at this time as our investigation is ongoing. While some panicked lawmakers simply pleaded for Trump to stop the siege, one text came from an elected official who suggested a way to derail the congressional certification of the 2020 election results. One of the texts, as you said, has been identified as being from Representative Jim Jordan. Now, CNN has learned that Jordan forwarded this text to Meadows, laying out a theory about how former Vice President Mike Pence could stop the certification of the 2020 election results. Now, the text read in part, on January 6, 2021, Vice President Mike Pence, as president of the Senate, should call out all electoral votes that he believes are unconstitutional as no electoral votes at all. This is just an example of the intense pressure that Pence was facing, not just from the former president, but also from his allies to act on these unproven legal theories. Another message from a different lawmaker showed how their main regret was not the January 6th violence, but the inability to stop Joe Biden from becoming president. Here's the last message I want to highlight, again from a lawmaker, in the aftermath of January 6th. If we could cue graphic number three. Yesterday was a terrible day. We tried everything we could in our objection to the six states. I'm sorry, nothing worked. The day after a failed attempt to stop the peaceful transfer of power through violence, an elected lawmaker tells the White House Chief of Staff, I'm sorry, nothing worked. 
That is chilling. After the recitation of the text messages, the House committee unanimously voted to recommend that Meadows be cited for contempt of Congress for refusing to show up and testify after receiving a subpoena. History will be rewritten about these times, about the work this committee has undertaken. And history will not look upon any of you as martyrs, Representative Benny G. Thompson, the Democrat who chairs the committee, said, mentioning Bannon, Clark, and Meadows by name. History will not dwell on your long list of privilege claims or your sleight of hand. I predict that history won't be kind to those people. Whatever legacy he thought he left in the House, this is his legacy now. His former colleagues singing him out, for criminal prosecution because he wouldn't answer questions about what he knows about a brutal attack on our democracy. That's his legacy. But he's hasn't left us any choice. Mr. Meadows put himself in this situation and he must now accept the consequences. So I will support the select committee's adoption of this report, recommending the House cite Mark Randall Meadows for contempt of Congress and refer him to the Department of Justice for prosecution. Cheney said Meadows' testimony was necessary to fully understand Trump's extreme dereliction of duty during the insurrection. Mr. Meadows' testimony will bear on another key question before this committee. Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceedings to count electoral votes. We know that for 187 minutes, President Trump refused to act. And he refused to act when his action was required, it was essential, and it was compelled by his duty, compelled by his oath of office. Indeed, a number of members of the press a number of members of this body, member, a member of the president's own family, all urged the president take action because they understood that the president of the United States had a responsibility to call off the mob. Hours passed despite this without any action by the president. Fox News immediately went into damage control and locked its star anchors down for 24 hours before allowing Hannity and Ingraham to issue statements. Here's what they had to say. Instead of candor, self-reflection, or humility, the pair whined, deflected, and cried about left-wing hacks supposedly smearing them by simply repeating their own words. Hannity also found time to somehow blame Nancy Pelosi and the Democrats for the insurrection. We now know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he knew was Trump's responsibility, even as it was happening. Where is the outrage in the media over my private text messages being released again publicly? Do we believe in privacy in this country? Apparently not. I mean, what, what, what's really going on with Liz Cheney? It was a massive criminal act. The people who penetrated that capital were criminals. The people that helped them penetrate the capital are criminals. You're a lawyer. You know this. If I drive the getaway car or I case the place out, I'm just as guilty as the trigger man. All right? That's, that, that's the way the law operates. And they're going to find that members of Congress were aiding and abetting this, that Trump was behind it, major people in the administration were behind it. And we have to remember, this is a massive criminal attack. It just wasn't an assault 
on the temple of democracy or whatever we say, these were criminals in that in, in that building. And these were people on Fox who were aiding and abetting criminality. That's not a good thing, not not in a nation of laws. And hmm. I hope that they stay very, very aggressive and expose these criminals and the people that supported them to the very extent that they possibly can. And we're going to find out a lot. The coup attempt came not so incidentally after Fox News personalities, including those two, cast doubt on the election result 774 times in the two-week period after their own network called the 2020 election for Joe Biden. Ingraham ranted against left-wing media hacks and the regime media for defaming her as a hypocrite. She defended herself by playing clips of her show from January 6th, along with tweets where she denounced the assault on the Capitol. Of course the regime media was somehow trying to twist this message to try to tar me as a liar, a hypocrite, who privately sounded the alarm on January 6th, but publicly downplayed it. Had they bothered to actually watch what I said the night of January 6th, or read any of my public tweets, from the afternoon of January 6th, well then they couldn't have denied the truth. Does that sound like I was downplaying it to you? Now here, but it was not an insurrection. To say anything different is beyond dishonest and it ignores the fact. She actually played one of the clips where she downplayed the right wing's role in the insurrection and used her show to blame Antifa and leftists instead in a segment dedicated to denying that she'd done that. Ingraham, who earlier this year mocked and smeared a brave Capitol Hill police officer who'd by chance risked his life to defend Republicans as a crisis actor, may not be stupid, but she sure seems to think that the viewers are. It is unclear that Hannity and Ingraham knew that their correspondence might one day be made public. But it doesn't fucking matter. We now know that the Fox News hosts not only knew the seriousness of what was happening on January 6th, but they acted to try to get Donald Trump to do something to fucking stop it. They had been knowingly lying to their audience about the Capitol insurrection and their attempts to intercede ever since. I beg you, Sean, to remember the frame of mind you were in when you wrote that text on January 6th. And when Laura did, why doesn't he say something? Why? Okay, but, and he, but you and, wanted. But the point you is, saw, he did. You saw unfulding before your. He you did. saw unfolding before your very eyes an attack on democracy. Let me give it to An Dan. attack on the Constitution. The point, an attack on the capital of the United that. States he of America. He said peacefully. This is the fucked up world that we must now inhabit. Even when presented with absolute proof of their own words, we must hear from Hannity and Ingraham that they in fact did not say these things. And then the spin goes on and on and on. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is Ali Velshi. The MSNBC Sunday returns to us after spending the previous week reporting from the front lines of the devastating tornadoes that destroyed a wide swath of Kentucky. He saw firsthand how lives were upended in the corner of America already reeling from the pandemic. 
He joins me on mea culpa as the January 6th committee is beginning to bare its teeth a bit and actually bite back with some force. The discovery of these Fox News emails is a gift from heaven in that it shows firsthand the hypocrisy inside these men and women. And on this subject, Velshi has a lot to say. So let's go now to that conversation. Okay, Ali. On Monday, Liz Cheney raised the prospect that former President Donald Trump could be referred for criminal prosecution for his role in obstructing the counting of electoral votes and other matters of election interference. Now, she went on and said during the open committee, and I quote, Mr. Meadows' testimony will bear on another key question before this committee. Did Donald Trump, through action or inaction, corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes? Now, according to legal experts, she used her words very carefully as Cheney was referring to statutory language. To corruptly seek to obstruct or impede Congress's official proceeding to count electoral votes is a crime. In that context, it now appears that Meadows' text messages are the smoking gun needed to finally hold Trump accountable. What's your thoughts here? So this is a, this is a really, really interesting question around which this whole conversation about January 6th uh, circles, right? So for people who had said to me, why are we even doing this? Back when we were talking about a January 6th commission uh, and then a, a, a properly bipartisan committee, one in which Republicans, uh, Republican leadership uh, appointed people, I had people saying to me, why are we doing this? We already had an impeachment. We've already we've already done this. We, we've, we've got all that detail. But if you remember during the impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial, uh, the impeachment managers, including state Casey Plaskett went into, you know, they're lawyers like you. They, they they know how to go through detail. And they went through remarkable detail about everything that happened on the congressional side, everything that happened in the Capitol. What we don't have and we're not we're starting to get is the connective tissue between every minute that occurred at the Capitol and what had happened the day before at the Mayflower Hotel or, you know, with John Eastman or the others uh, in Trump's circle. So, yeah, Meadows becomes very central to this operation because a, a number of the other people who have provided testimony, like Ali Alexander, for instance, or others, have said, we were, this is First Amendment stuff. We were just out there encouraging people to protest, and uh, and that's what it was going to be. When, in fact, what we're learning is that there are a combination of multi-layered efforts to actually do what Liz Cheney is suggesting, to actually impede the counting of the votes. Now, Michael, you and I have been following politics for a long time. I was definitely not one of those people who knew the relevance of that activity that took place on January 6th, the congressional activity, right? It was until this year, it's been a rubber stamp. It's been something that just happens. Nobody even thinks about it. But obviously, the people around Trump, including John Eastman um, and and others, uh, were were had had plots underway, one of which was to get the vice president to do something about this, which might have been more legal, but but bad. And the vice president didn't want to go along. But this idea that they were attempting to obstruct the counting of these votes and the certification of the election very openly and very proudly with financial backers, where there were lots of text messages and, and, and information flowing, I think is incredibly serious. And that's the thing that I think most Americans who look at this as if it's in the rearview mirror, as if it's gone, Trump's gone, the danger has passed us, need to examine very, very carefully who said what and what did they want to happen? Because what they wanted to happen was to stop that 
that vote that would certify the election. And I've been wondering, like I think a lot of Americans have, what is the consequence to that? If that's true, if that's what they were trying to attempt, there must be consequence to that. You can't simply have an election and then decide you didn't like the outcome of that election because you were you, you, you didn't like the outcome of the election. Try and stop it and then walk away. And that's why uh, what Liz Cheney said is, is very, very important. I don't think most Americans can answer. What's the consequence if what we think Donald Trump and his cronies were trying to do was actually attempted? Well, one of the things that I've heard is that that would, of course, preclude, uh, preclude him from another presidential run. Now, I already know, and I've said this on many, many shows on MSNBC, CNN, in the press, Donald Trump is not going to run. But this would certainly put the nail in the proverbial coffin because he cannot run if, in fact, that you are found guilty of this act. Now, you're right. As lawyers, we always parse words. We use words very, very carefully. In this specific case, Meadow, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Representative Liz Cheney was spot on when she turned around and she talked about through action or inaction. I mean, you're basically right, right. talking about day and night, right? I mean, you're yep. talking about complete polar opposites. He could easily say, I didn't know, right? I didn't know. I didn't tell him to do it. It doesn't make a difference. You knew that it was going on. Now, the second right. he goes ahead and says, no, I didn't, boom, that's where he's fucked. Because at the end of the day, there are enough text messages. I believe this, and I, and I said it, um, you know, <laughs> and it got quite a bit of pickup. I believe that Mark Meadows is the dumbest asshole on the hill. Not only does he talk about it in his book, which is beyond stupid when you want to claim privilege and are contemplating on taking the fifth. On top of that, he did turn over approximately 9,000 documents. Now, rest assured that I believe, I believe that those 9,000 are not the only 9,000. I, I believe that there is a ton more that are far more insidious than the ones that they turned over. And with this group of people, knowing Trump as I do, the question becomes, why these 9,000, right? Who is the sacrificial right. lamb going to be other than Donald? Because that's what it's always right. about. But something also Representative Cheney turned around and she stated, these texts leave no doubt the White House knew exactly what was happening at the Capitol. Members of Congress, the press, and others, like his son Don Jr., wrote to Mark Meadows as the attack was underway. This, to me, is damning. Now, first of all, the way I see it, you really don't even need Mark Meadows. Because remember, when you send a text, you're not sending it to no one. You're sending it to someone right. else, whether it's another lawmaker, whether it's an outside person, because I know... Yep. I believe, I should say, and I'm almost 100% certain that Meadows was in communication with people outside on the ground during the January 6th insurrection. He was incommunicado with these individuals. All right. Right. That now puts those people in the hot seat. And I believe one yesterday, according to the news, uh, testified before the committee, uh, Dustin Stockton is one, and I yep. believe another, uh, Jennifer Lawrence, is due on the Hill any day now. So what makes it interesting is what was their communications with individuals right. like Mark Meadows? And ultimately what happens is you take the text message, 
maybe it's one that he didn't turn over and it's part of the smoking gun and it's more than enough to turn around and say, okay, the bullshit stops here. Drop the mic, Mark Meadows, face the fucking wall, put your hands behind your back, let's go. And that's what- You remember when Mark Meadows- represented a group of members of Congress, a group of people who ran for Congress who argued that the government doesn't listen to people, that they try and make decisions on behalf of the people, that they're not representative. So the idea that that Mark Meadows was in the room where it happened when they were potentially deciding to overturn the will of the people on, on an entirely different level fascinates me. But to your point about whether this affecting Donald Trump running again. I, I think you and I share the view that this Donald Trump pretending to run or being the de facto head of the uh, Republican Party is a fantastic grift because he sends out these emails. He makes money off of it. Why complicate that with running for an election, right, where you can take all this money um, and, and keep it for yourself? I, I will say you know him better than I do, so I, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't con- contradict what you have to say, but I'm not sure. I think Donald Trump got a lot of votes. I think he has a lot of people who will who will go to the end of the earth for him and that has got to be quite quite intoxicating for anyone but for somebody like donald trump whom you know feeds off of that sort of energy i'm not sure we've seen the back of him so i think for people who are truly worried about democracy in this country and where it goes uh, it's not all donald trump because democracy is in peril and a lot of people we we now know are, are supporting uh, its demise but donald trump is the figurehead for this thing so the idea that something comes of this that does prevent donald trump from running again legally i think might be much more important than 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 the concern that he's probably not going to run again but even after that happens, Michael, we haven't dealt with the underlying problem, and that is a Republican Party that is enthralled in an enthralled to Donald Trump, a Republican Party who very deliberately said, we're not going to have our own conservative policies. We're, our policy is Donald Trump. And too many of them have still not said uh, we're breaking these ties. So Donald Trump continues with each passing day to, to wreck the Republican Party. I, a lot of my viewers are not, I mean, they're Democrats. But no country is healthy with one political party uh, and another one entirely crumbling. Democrats have their own issues and and they're fighting them out. But that's the way it should be. Republicans, you know, Joe Walsh likes to say it's not a civil war in the Republican Party. The war is over. Yeah. And it's really scary, too. But Representative Cheney, when she was talking about going back to those um, those two those two words, right, action uh, and inaction. What she was referring to was 18 U.S.C. 1512, which is a statute, it's a felony, if in fact that you are convicted of that. Now, I'm not sure that this has ever been decided. If it was, I think someone had said it was like in the early 1800s, here we go again, like with Mark Meadows, you know, the first, you know, a person to be held in contempt of Congress. Make the fucking example. And this is now in the hands once again of the DOJ. It's in the hands of Merrick Garland. You know, I hate the fact that I have to be so critical of our attorney general. Because in all fairness to Merrick Garland, and I I think it's important on mea culpa that, you know, we be fair to everybody here. He walked into a shit show simply because he was proceeding someone who was the most corrupt attorney general in the history of this country, weaponized by an autocratic monarch, dictator, you know, um, ideologue, Donald J. Trump. And now 
He wants to take the exact opposite, go to the far extreme. One was just beyond corrupt, and he wants to show that he's not being partisan, which is what your attorney general is supposed to be. I'm all for that. Where's the special counsel? That's the decision that you're supposed to do. Automatically refer it. Let a special counsel now decide this. But we can't wait. This is my point, Ali. We cannot wait. You You know why? Because Trump is, Ali, Trump is going to run the clock. That's why I keep bringing it up. I I, I think you're very right. And and justice done properly is slow, unfortunately. Not when when you mean. Not when you mean. I I was going to say, I was going to say, because we went through four years where we saw things going at a a particular speed because Donald Trump actually referred to the Department of Justice as his Department of Justice, his attorney general. And the day Merrick Garland was nominated, Joe Biden said he is not my attorney general. He is the attorney general of the United States of America and it is the Department of Justice. Now, when we go back to old fashioned ways in which justice works, in order to be seen as free from politics, um, it does sometimes move slowly. And you are a, a remarkable exception to that. And there have been exceptions, and many of them were under the Trump administration. So what does Merrick Garland do? Because anything he does that looks anything like his predecessor will be deemed political and thereby delegitimized. Th- this January 6th committee, which is bipartisan, does have two uh, Republicans on it, um, although they are they are sullied uh, by, by their own party. there's every attempt to delegitimize it as opposed to doing what you are suggesting, get to the bottom of what actually happened and prosecute it. And I don't know, Michael, I don't know in this world, in 2021, as we come to an end, how you're supposed to square that circle, how you deal with the fact that the Department of Justice was close, was circling the drain of the toilet. And that's a big, big, big problem for Americans when you do not trust your Department of Justice, where you think your Supreme Court is politicized. And Donald Trump caused a lot of that, right? He caused the distrust of the Department of Justice. He caused the distrust uh, of, of the, the voting system. How do you fix it without worsening it the way Donald Trump did? And that's where I think Merrick Garland is caught here. How does he not look like he is Joe Biden's attorney general, that he doesn't have a dog in this uh, hunt, that he just wants the pursuit of justice? Appoint a special counsel. That's what he should be doing right now, immediately. You know, you got to give a lot of credit going back to, you know, um, 18 uh, USC 1512, um, you know, the statute that we've been talking about, because the decision came very quickly um, by uh, by Judge, um, what was his name again? Uh, by Judge Dabney uh, Friedrich. And he just ruled, you know, the counting of electoral votes the business it was engaged in when Trump and all these supporters and these insurrectionists decided to overrun the Capitol qualifies as an official proceeding under the statute. And it's the same 1512 statute that they've now brought um, as charges against more than 200 of these insurrectionists that attacked the Capitol. But, you know, Ali, moving on, the two great scandals of our modern political era are, of course, Watergate and now the January 6th insurrection. With Watergate, you obviously had a GOP willing to hold their own president accountable. This is obviously not the case now. But to continue the metaphor, in Watergate, the smoking gun were Nixon's tapes, which had him speaking about the break-in and the subsequent cover-up. With the release of Mark Meadows' text messages, we may have finally found our second. The question remains, though, Even if they can prove Trump's culpability here, will it make one shred of difference Mm -hmm. to either the GOP or his brainwashed base? 
from a political standpoint, yeah. who are these hearings for and what does the outcome need to be? So this is a, a, a massive question, right? What what changes if we find out what we think we know? I'll, I'll tell you the answer to part of that question is I thought I knew a lot as a result of the impeachment hearings, right? The detail about what happened. And yet every day I'm learning more and more about this. And every with each passing week or month, when you listen to um, these these former DOJ officials or or what Meadows was doing or what these other people were doing, what you what you come with is that that insurrection, which people people struggled with the language uh, on January 6th and January 7th, January 8th. What do we call this? A coup attempt, an insurrection. And you realize that it had actually all the hallmarks of an insurrection. People say we can't call it a coup because it didn't succeed. Doesn't matter. It's a coup. That's what they tried to do. They tried to 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 overthrow what was the operating of of government. And I, I think that there is value in that being fairly adjudicated. Right. Whether or not it changes many minds, I think there is value in knowing exactly what happened, knowing the degree to which it was planned. And these people in the attorney general's office were writing to governors and secretaries of states, cajoling them, sometimes threatening them that Donald Trump himself was threatening. To me, it's all the same story. Right. Donald Trump's phone call to Brad Raffensperger and the meetings at the Mayflower Hotel uh, or the um, the Willard. Uh, I think it was the, Will the Willard. Hotel. Willard. Yeah. Um, Sorry, I didn't mean to ruin that for the Mayflower. It was at Willard. Those meetings and these text messages, it's all relevant to understanding how did this all come together? Because whether or not everybody pays the price or it changes the mind of a a Trump supporter is secondary to the idea that I would like a system that is not simply dependent on a few people doing the right thing. I would like a system that says you can't actually do this. There's an election and then this happens and then this happens and then you get another election if you didn't like who you voted for this time. So I do think that there are things that have to be fixed and we have to know everything that went wrong in the breakdown of democracy in those days in uh, late November, December and January so that we can put into place mechanisms to prevent them from happening again. Even if nobody changes their mind about anything, about how they feel about it, nobody who loves Trump changes their mind about him and even thinks that he was being he's being persecuted. Bottom line is we have things that were broken in our system that allowed it to get this far that I never understood as a journalist were could have even come close to happening and that we need to be able to fix that. So thinking members of Congress and thinking Americans have got to take the information that comes out of this committee and say, okay, we got some big holes here. We got we got big holes that we have to fill. Let's fill them now. Totally agree with you, Ali. But here's here's another thought process onto this. The American people, and I'm not talking about these sycophantic followers, no matter what Donald does, they're never going to say that he did a single thing wrong. But as far as they're concerned, he's the, you know, he's the next um, coming of the Messiah, right? But people are angry and they're pissed. And the reason they, you know, they ask why, right? Why is this process so freaking slow, right? It's in the information is right there in your face. Let me just point you to, for example, there was an article in Newsweek that talked about the PowerPoint presentation um, right by um, Mark Meadows that was handed over to the panel, um, you know, looking over, obviously, January 6th, the riot. And while it's not an equivalent to right. the Watergate smoking gun tapes, though I don't understand why not, right, they, they bear a lot of similar characteristics. They're, they're similar in nature. And that's, of course, taking the words from a former Watergate prosecutor by the name of Jill Wine Banks, 
right? And of course, she's talking about it's a 38-page PowerPoint presentation. And Unbelievable. Why, and why I turn around and I refer again to this 38-PowerPoint presentation as it's in your frickin' face, it's entitled Election Fraud, Foreign Interference, and Options for January 6th. Now, why not just turn around and say instead how to overthrow an election and take right, over right. Or, or how to make Donald Trump our Fuhrer, right? It's yep. as stupid as that. You see, what Meadows, who, again, I have to repeat it, he's the dumbest asshole on the Hill. The fact that he would even name this something, why don't you just name it Exhibit B, right? Why don't you just yep. say Exhibit you know, O for overthrow? Election right. fraud, foreign interference, and options for January 6th. He thought he was being clever right. and all Washingtonian. You're being a fucking yep. moron, right? And now it's yep. in the hands of the House Select Committee that's going to turn around and throw your dumbass in prison because you're a fool. So it's the 38 page, the way that he named it, his book, his, you know, his futzing around with them. Oh, you know, we're going to come in. We're going to speak. We're not coming in. We are coming in. We're not coming in. I don't know whether or not he is a death wish, but at some point in time, it's insulting, Ali. It's insulting to you, to me, to our listeners on both MSNBC side, on the mea culpa side, to all Americans. It's insulting. Why? Because it's right in your face. They're actually, yeah. it's, there's nobody there that can turn around and say to me that this 38 PowerPoint presentation doesn't involve the president. Let's even say, right. let's even keep the president out of this one, the former, the former president. Let's just turn around and talk about Meadows. Hey, pal, you were involved in this. According to 1512, right. it's a felony. You're going to prison, asshole. Plain and simple. Right. So either either tell us what your boss knew or or we'll just deal with what you knew. Remember that Mark Meadows is not a chief of staff in the model of prior chief of staffs who were generally speaking so powerful and influential that they it's conceivable that they were making presentations and discussing things uh, not with the president for whom they worked because they controlled a lot of stuff. In this case with Donald Trump, what we learned after chief of staff after chief of staff is that Donald Trump is his own chief of staff, which means Meadows was not likely doing this in a vacuum. It's not likely that Meadows had the authority or the power to do things like this in a vacuum, which leads one to the conclusion that Donald Trump must have been involved in this or must have known about this. But again, that's what the legal process is for, right? They can they can try and depose him. We can get information. What did Donald Trump know? When did he know it? And to um, Liz Cheney's point, did he by action or inaction? And that's an important point, because if we've got all this evidence that people were texting everybody around him to say this is going on, you got to call off these people, journalists and Fox texting uh, Meadows to tell him to call these people off. What's the likelihood no one told Donald Trump that? What's the likelihood that that something happens at Fox News uh, where they're talking about Donald Trump or what he should or shouldn't do? And that message didn't get to Donald Trump. I think you would argue zero. Um, so. What did he know it was happening? Because the implication is that he knew what was going on and he was sort of OK with it. Right. It was working. It was what he wanted. He he wanted people to disrupt this. Um, and you know what? If it got a little violent, it got a little violent. But but the, the, in the end, they needed to disrupt January 6th. I think that narrative has to be spelled out once again by this committee. What he did or did not do, which led to the insurrection that could have actually led to the overturning of democracy. And, Michael, it sounds like the sky is falling when people talk like this. But I am actually fearful about the demise of democracy in this country because we have watched it happen in other countries where democracy was very healthy up until the moment that it wasn't. 
And that's what I worry about, that if we just treat this as rearview mirror, we don't really care. Donald Trump's gone. It, it was he was a blowhard. That is misunderstanding what the threat to democracy is right now. The sustaining threat with Donald Trump and his people, the threat where the Republican Party does not want to take this on and does not want to start saying, hey, we're conservatives. We have actual real values that we want to debate with with Democrats. That's not who they are right now. So I'd like democracy back. And part of the ability to do that is to get to the bottom of January 6th in great detail. Right. And that's why I keep saying Merrick Garland has to start acting. But let's not forget that Cheney said other texts were sent in real time about the events as they as they were unfolding. And I quote, these text messages leave no doubt. That's a strong comment to come from Representative Cheney. The White House knew right. exactly what was happening here at the Capitol. One text Mr. Meadows received said, and I quote, we are under siege here at the Capitol. Now, it goes on and on, right? And Cheney then continued, and these are the ones that I say are so in your face that I'm not sure what else needs to be said in order to prove that he was aware. Donald Trump Jr. texted again and again, urging action by the president, quoting, we need an Oval Office address. He has to lead now. It has gone too far and gotten out of hand, end quote. But hours passed, no action, right? So you can really tell me that Don Jr., the namesake of the president himself needs Mark Meadows to pass daddy a message. And then there were some others that said, sorry, I try, but I can't do it. That to me sounds just like Ivanka, you know, sorry, Sally. Right. Uh, it's, it's Ivanka, right? And then there are others. There's dozens and dozens. But rest assured, it's happening, right? The man lives by the television set, and that's by his own admission, Everybody right. is texting him. It's not as if he was in a bunker somewhere, right? In right. in a row, or right. he was out of the country. He's in the White House and literally at the Capitol. There's an insurrection going on. That's where Meadows is relevant. But if you can't get to Meadows, I don't know. Bring Don Jr. up there. Let's go, Don. What did you say to Meadows? Who else told Meadows? You had your brother, um, Eric outside with Lara, his wife, you know, sitting there as organizers of this ellipse event. Now what? All right. I'll tell you what. Hey, stupid. And I'm talking about Eric because he's the dumbest of them all. And Lara, you're up next. All right. And do me a favor. We pray to God that you lie. So therefore you have a 1000 violation. And now we lock your asses up too. It's that simple. You have to hold right. these people accountable for their own dirty deeds because each and every time that the Teflon Don and his and you know and his children get away with this shit, it undermines and it and it rips the fabric of our democracy. It destroys our constitution one by one by one. It's like death by a thousand cuts. Tell me in your opinion though why you think that the special prosecutor will escape the scrutiny and criticism that the, the, the select committee is getting from the Trumpians and, and, and Republicans who think this is just uh, yet another uh, witch hunt, which is what Donald I Trump always says. I don't think. I never said that he would escape scrutiny. If I was the special prosecutor, if I was special counsel on this, ask me if I'd give a shit what Donald or his sycophantic followers think of me. I don't care. I'm going off of facts, documentary evidence. Listen, I would say to him, listen, asshole, texts don't lie. That's communications that were going on in real time. The fact that you have a difference of opinion, you keep your opinion. 
I'm going to keep mine, but I'm the one that's entrusted in order to, to tell the truth and to weigh all the evidence as it exists. And I would not do a one year, like a Mueller report type of event. This is, this is over in 30 days, you're getting my report. And if you fail, we're going straight for contempt charges. You are going to show up. This is nonsense at this point. I mean, you know, everything doesn't have to take a year because what do we know? Midterm elections are coming around. And if by chance and historically we know what happens in the House when the president is of the opposite party, you generally tend to lose the House. We already know, based on gerrymandering, that there's 10 seats that the Democrats are going to lose simply because of, you know, the way that the lines are now drawn. This is a this is a real problem. And it goes right to your comment, Ali, about how our democracy is in legitimate jeopardy. Yeah, and unfortunately, um, Michael, that becomes, for whatever reason, a lot of people who thought that Donald Trump was dangerous to democracy, uh, who watched us on MSNBC, have have decided, they've come to the conclusion that Donald Trump's largely out of the scene right now and that this is relitigating the past. And these are, you know, normal good people who do not believe that this threat to democracy is actually active and still around. And part of it, as you know, is Donald Trump and his people, but part of it is not. This is bigger than Donald Trump. There's there's anti-democratic sentiments going on around the world. Uh, they attach themselves to authoritarian type people, um, people who are that frustrated and that uh, feeling outside of, uh, you know, the, 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 the flow of things do tend to get attracted to people like Donald Trump, uh, wherever they are in the world. The, the people who say things, they talk big uh, and, and, and don't seem to embrace the democratic process all that much. That worries me that the, the alarm bells are not going off the same way they were when Donald Trump was president. He was tweeting all the time. And you definitely could see in real time the degree to which this guy could be undermining democracy. It feels like it's it's fallen into the background. And as a result, a lot of people are not as motivated to get to the bottom of this as they may have been while he was president. Well, too bad they need to. Now, Ali, the House officially voted to hold Mark Meadows in contempt of Congress, and they now refer to him to the DOJ for criminal prosecution. From what I understand, because it's now a criminal referral to the DOJ, the committee effectively has lost Meadows' testimony. But... Going back to what I said before, does it even matter now that they have mountains of evidence already released? Isn't it now it smarter? Right, thought, but wouldn't yeah. it now be smarter to say, okay, look, we, Michael Cohen said, and we all agree, you are the dumbest asshole on the hill. Here's your two options. One, cooperate. Provide us with the testimony that, we, that, we're, you know, that we're asking. Don't lie. Tell us the truth or you're going to prison. End of story. And let's see what decision he makes for his supreme leader. Yeah, and I, I mean, this is not some rando who participated in the rally, right? This was the chief of staff to the president of the United States. I see zero reason why the chief of staff to the president of the United States would not be cooperating with legitimate congressional inquiry into whether something did or did not happen. If Mark Meadows is satisfied that he did not undermine the law, and he did not violate the law, testify. I, I, I don't see any valid reason for a guy who ran for Congress on the basis of the fact that he thought Washington was a swamp that didn't pay, pay attention to 
democracy and and, and people's voices and needs. I, there's no validity to uh, to his claim. There's no validity to, to most of these people who have claimed either immunity or executive privilege or or Fifth Amendment on this stuff. I understand the Fifth Amendment is one's right, uh, but it, it is highly suspicious that a bunch of people who are working entirely around a president who thought it was duly elected the first time and thought he was duly elected the second time are so uh, are hiding all of their stuff because if there's nothing to see here, show us that there's nothing to see. And I think you're right. The threat of, of penalty, the threat of conviction is the only thing that uh, that is going to get the truth out of some of these people. You know, I wonder, Mark Meadows, I believe he's an attorney, right? Um, I think he holds a law license. I wonder if he loses his law license as a result of this criminal contempt charge now. You know, it would be interesting. Start taking away his future on top of it. Now, asshole, you're losing your law license. Like they did to me. You know, before I even turned around and I was sentenced, I'm already getting 20, 30 phone calls a day from the New York Bar Association. It would be nice if they would have turned around and said, hey, you know, the rating of an attorney's law office is a violation of his attorney-client privileges. You know, we probably, you know, should do more. We probably should say something, how this is, you know, a real problem for the entire New York State Bar Association. But no, they said nothing. I'd like to see whether or not whatever bar that Mark Meadows sits for, and I'm not talking about the local right. pub, right? I'm talking about, you know, the Bar Association. Um, I'd like to see whether or not they strip him and show him after you get your ass kicked out of, out of government because nobody is going to ever bring you back. What are you going to do next now that you have no law license? You got to really. Except that for guys like this, there's a whole industry that's developed that they, they didn't even know it, it developed, right? This, this insurrectionist industry, this, this new Republican Party that is a, a grifting body that gives contracts to people to recount votes and to, to, to go around the stuff. I, I, I think maybe Mark Meadows' best days might be ahead of him right now, given what the Republican Party is allowing to happen, right? This is a, an absolute industry. It's happening in Pennsylvania today. It's happening in Georgia, it's happening in Texas, in Arizona, in Michigan, in Wisconsin, all over this country. It has become an art form to go out there, so uh, mistrust of the system, and then show people how they can how they can undermine democracy. It's, it's a money-making industry. Yes, except for one thing. That's all fueled by Donald Trump's rhetoric. Donald right now is seething. I know him better than Mark Meadows. I know him better than anybody. I know him better than his own kids. All right, because I really fully understand him and I have no emotional attachment. So I'm telling you, he's seething right now that Meadows, number one, wrote the book, which opened up right. a shit can for him. Number two, right, first turned over 9,000 documents, which are now causing him all sorts of mishigas, right? A lot of headaches and so on. He's not going to be helpful. Right now, he needs Mark Meadows. The second he doesn't need him, Mark who? That's what's going to happen. Right. But speaking about something else, on CNN, California Representative Eric Swalwell said that the House Select Committee could ultimately find that former President Donald Trump was criminally liable for those, um, for those people who were hurt during the attack on the U.S. Capitol. All of this is being pieced together from what Meadows text messages, which paint a portrait of not just what Trump did, but what he didn't do. Right back to our action and inaction. Right. The idea being his inaction was at best a dereliction of duty and at worst criminal negligence. What grounds do you see for another criminal referral in this? Look, I, I think they're, you know, the way you know uh, that that 
things like investigations go is you you start with some little fish and you work your way up and and you know as they've worked their way up they've gone from randos who showed up at a, at a at a rally who really probably weren't intending to be involved in anything violent uh, and got caught up in the whole thing all the way up. And they've cut some deals with with some of these people uh, in which they're not prosecuted. And some people uh, are very upset with that. They're saying everybody who participated in this thing uh, should have the book thrown at them. But they are working like a methodical investigation their way up the, the chain. And now we're up to I mean, it's it's worth saying Mark Meadows was the chief of staff. This is a very, 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 very big deal that he is now in those crosshairs and that we're we're getting up to something where he's got evidence. I think the book thing is about the strangest thing I've ever seen. Why, when you know that you're going to be in the crosshairs of an investigation like this, would you bother to write a book and introduce as, as potential evidence what you have kept back, what what proof you have, what documentation you might have. I think the whole thing's very, 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 very weird. And and I hope he's got good legal advice about somebody who told him, wow, this book's going to be a great idea. But the point is we're getting very, very close to President Donald Trump. And I think there have been some near misses in the last few years. And I think this committee is very determined not to have near misses because you can't continue to poke a bear and, and, and not you know, not not get the bear. That's the problem. Donald Trump does seem to, as you say, Teflon, he does seem to get a little bit stronger amongst his base of supporters every time something like this fails. So I think there's a likelihood that this gets to Donald Trump. But I do think that everybody wants to be as cautious as possible. And the danger, of course, of caution is that caution takes time. Caution costs time. Uh, There is some criticism that there are things that have to be solved in this country that are economic and social policy issues and that some people are spending a lot of time on this. It can't this can't happen. This can't go until the midterm elections. Let's put it that way. So I don't know what the solution is, but it does seem like it gets closer. And and it's a reasonable assumption to say that if you you uh, ignite the passions of people who then go and do something that you kind of hope they would do, and you're the president of the United States, and they're rallying to your cause, and you were there at the ellipse, and you were you were you were egging them on, and then when asked to not egg them on, you delayed in your response, and then you gave a, a milk toast response to it. I, I think there are you're the lawyer here, but I, I don't think it's the world's most sophisticated argument to make. Yeah, I don't think it's a sophisticated argument at all. But, you know, you ask a funny question because we've I mean, I like I said, I talk about it all the time. Why did Mark Meadows put out the book? Right. The book. Because he's Amazing. the dumbest asshole on the hill. There's just no other way to describe him. Nobody with half a brain would possibly have put out a book when you are being asked to speak before Congress about the exact same sum and substance of what is going to exist in the book. I mean, that's I mean, that's just stupid 101. I mean, this is this. I don't know who possibly turned around and told him that this could be might be, you know, a good idea for you to do, especially at this time. And then to turn around and to refuse to come in and to talk about the same things that you just put out for twenty nine ninety five, and that's the fascinating part, right? That's where people lose patience. I, I, you, and I both respect the law and understand that the, the Fifth Amendment is a well, really I, important. I'm so sorry, uh, I don't mean to interrupt. You need to speak for yourself. Clearly, I didn't have enough respect for the law. I'm a, I'm, I'm, I'm a former felon. I, I Let me put it this way. Uh, You and I both understand the importance of certain (laughs) things, including the Fifth Amendment. But people people fall, uh, you know, when you when you're just thumb your nose at it, like like uh, Mark Meadows is doing to say, 
for my own benefit, for my own money, I wrote this book and I get to say, I'll cherry pick the stuff that I want to say, but there's an actual investigation into wrongdoing. And I'm not going to cooperate with you on that. At that point, you know what? Your Fifth Amendment uh, rights seem a little bit hollow to me. It does not look like you were you were. That's the spirit of the, 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 the constitutional amendment that we're talking about. But I am puzzled because do you think knowing Donald Trump and his circle, I don't know how well, you know, Mark Meadows, um, they weren't part of the same circle. Does Mark Meadows just think he didn't do anything wrong? And that's why the book's okay, but not participating with the committee. Like, I don't understand because once you've introduced that stuff, prosecutors and investigators can go after you when you, you uh, plead the fifth, because they can say, you've introduced it. You've actually commented on this. You've talked about it. We, we're just following up on the actual stuff that you published. This is not even like the text messages, which in theory, John Eastman is suing Verizon to say, don't release my text messages. At least he's making the argument. These are my private documents. Mark Meadows published a book with the details about this stuff. It's fascinating to me. I don't understand it. I assume talking to you, you'd sit there and say, oh, I'm a lawyer. I get this. None of us understand this. So first of all, Mark Meadows text messages, the same with all government employees. They do not belong to the employee, the individual. Even if you're writing to your wife about what you want, you know, or to your husband, what you want for dinner, or where to go, or what have you. It doesn't work that way. Um, that email that text message, that communication belongs to the people and not to them individually. You know, one of the other things that you said also is that you see Trump's base is staying solid and, and growing. And so I disagree with that, Ali. I actually see his base decreasing. And I think they're decreasing because at some point in time, other than the diehards, who are like Mark Meadows, and this kind of answers that question as well. Why is Mark Meadows doing what he's doing? Does he think that he's actually right? Uh, and so the answer is no. He knows what he's doing is wrong, but he is so clouded in his head, like like on drugs with the cult of Trumpism. They Everybody that's around Trump believes that they are mini-Trumps. They're like little mini-bots, right? And they think that the way he behaves, that they can behave. I know because I was guilty of the exact same shit. And I said it to, you know, to Congressman um, Elijah Cummings when I stood before the House Oversight Committee and said, I know what you're doing and it's not going to work. I know the playbook that you're trying to run right. because I wrote it. It didn't work out well for me and it's not going to work out for you. Well, there goes another prediction that I was right on because who was I speaking right. to? the dumbest asshole on the hill when I said it to him. And Jim Jordan, another one. They think that they're, you know, that they're little mini Donalds and it's not going to end well for any of them. And these text messages really are much more significant than what people know or believe. And as more people go before the committee and testify like this Dustin Stockton, like this young lady, Jennifer Lawrence, like, you know, um, a half a dozen others, including some of the insurrectionists themselves that were involved in the organization of the ellipse, um, you know, uh, rally. They're, they're going to spill the beans because now it's, yep. I don't really want to go to jail. I don't really want to go to right. prison, Right. Why am I the one when I did it? Because they told me to do it. And you're going to see right. this over and over and over. But you don't need, and this is the part again that is infuriating. You don't need 10, 15, 20 people to say the same thing. One, two is enough. You don't need to kill 10 people to be a murderer. One, two is more than enough. Right. right? So just moving right. on for a second, Ali. 
Because we all get excited when we hear talk of criminal prosecution for Trump. But the fact remains, and this is what we were just talking about, that the Attorney General Mark Gar uh, Merrick Garland has been reticent to go after Trump in any meaningful way. Do you see part of this investigation process being the gathering of the evidence so that Merrick Garland must act? That's what I'm seeing right now, that they're looking to create like a thesaurus or a, a Webster, you know, a uh, Encyclopedia Britannica yeah. of documents, evidence and so on. So that Merrick yeah. Garland, it's basically a thousand pounds of documents that either Merrick Garland, you bring the indictment or we drop these books on your head. Right. So I think you might be onto something there. I think that the impeachment trial, the second impeachment trial was the narrative, right? It was the this is how this is what actually went down for people who you know saw it in a rush and didn't know what was going on. They really laid it out. But what they were short of then was any testimony from the inside, right? Anybody who was involved in it. Now you're getting some version of testimony from the inside, uh, people who are around it. And as you say, these text messages, I think politically, as you've seen, uh, Joe Biden has stayed fairly far from this thing, right? He's had certain options in here and he hasn't done that. I think Joe Biden truly believes and wants to be seen as somebody who is not directing uh, Merrick Garland about what to do with respect to Donald Trump. And I think Merrick Garland is probably waiting out this process to the extent that it seems fair for him to do so. In other words, they're continuing to subpoena people. They're continuing to um, ask for these criminal referrals. They're continuing to do the things that they can do. And at some point, they will run out of things that they can do, right? They'll either come up against enough uh, people who are stonewalling, not be able to get enough information, at which point it becomes imperative that Merrick Garland uh, act. And I, I, in my opinion, maybe I'm just being charitable, I'm thinking that that's what's happening. Merrick Garland and the Department of Justice are keeping their powder dry until the moment they, they don't need to. But in the mo for each day that the Department of Justice doesn't do something, this committee does seem to be getting more documentation and more evidence. And for each day that Donald Trump tries to prevent his documents from going over to this committee, he seems to lose every time in court, even with judges you know who are Trump judges. So the bottom line is this is still moving toward a resolution in which we will have lots and lots of detail about who knew what and when. What we know is what happened, right? We knew we need the who knew what and when. And it does seem like it's moving toward that conclusion. I think that as long as the, the January 6th committee has not cried uncle yet, uh, Merrick Garland is probably standing back. If they do, or they say, we have gotten as much information as we can get, but now we're stonewalled, have at it. I think you might see a, a change of tune from the uh, Justice Department. Well, then let me ask you this. There's one voice that has all but disappeared from the conversation, and that's the scumbag slob Bill Barr. Why has he not been subpoenaed by this committee? You know, every day I wake up and I wait to see Bill Barr, you know, subpoenaed by January 6th committee. And every day I'm disappointed because, again, I personally think he's a scumbag. Now, surely... He has information, damning information about Trump's plans, or he wouldn't have resigned in the first place. Do you believe that the committee will ultimately seek his testimony? And do you think Bill Barr will comply? I think if I were writing a book on Bill Barr, the title of the book would be Why? Everything about Bill Barbie, why? Right? Why is a guy who was generally speaking respected and and you know a lot of people didn't know who he was? Why did he uh, why did he apply for the job with Donald Trump when that, that that letter that he sent? Why did he decide to ruin his reputation? What reputation he had uh, in being Trump's attorney general and continuing to fall for that? And then why did he bail 
um, right at the last minute. I think there's a lot here about Bill Barr uh, that that remains to be answered. Um, but I think the, part of the issue is that there were people yet closer to Donald Trump in the uh, the final moments of what turned into be an insurrection. I think what you're going to hear from Bill Barr is the idea that I've heard this talk, but I wasn't involved in any kind of planning. Now we're finding out that there were senior Department of Justice, senior, senior Department of Justice uh, officials who were not only you know, threatening the, the the governors and the secretaries of state, but the idea that they had a plan to get rid of the acting head of the Department of Justice, along with, you know, with, with Trump to, to seat somebody who was not qualified for that job. That's really what an insurrection is. I mean, if you look up coup in the dictionary, it's what these these guys were trying to do. So I think there's there's information to be had from Bill Barr. I'm, I'm less worried about it because of everything you've been saying for the last hour. Look at the detail that we now have from a legal perspective. It's quite fulfilling. So at this point, it's 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 what people do about it. We're not we're not casting about now. We know much more than we knew a few months ago. Every week we know more, and it's devastating. It's devastating. But we These don't, guys really did. Uh, over yes, but Ali, we don't need more. That's the point of the frustration. Right, I'm with you. That with you. you have that. I, I have that. Our listeners have. There comes a point in time. Enough is enough. Yeah. Right in yeah. in in right. There is enough. It's it's super saturation at this point. For every I, drop that I, goes I, in, it's spilling over. But I'm intellectually um, interested in some of the stuff that comes out to understand the depths and the degree to which this uh, this polluted the Department of Justice and the uh, the executive branch. So I, I think there's still learning to be had about how we put in safeguards so that this doesn't happen again. But I agree with you as far as culpability and, and what was planned. Everybody has given some version ultimately of the same story. Yeah, we were planning this. Yeah. What actually happened was kind of what their dream was uh, to happen. It just didn't succeed. It didn't go far enough. The idea that it went too far is entirely unbelievable. It's implausible given the information that we have. Hence why you're a scholar and I am not. I'm just I'm just the average guy now on the street that wants to see justice. Um, the public hearings for January 6th are going to start right after New Year's. And many are predicting that under the hot lights, as the nation watches the testimony of all of these different Trump staffers discussing January 6th, that will finally break through to those who have thus far tuned this out. What impact do you believe that these hearings will have and what will they carry on impact? Um, you know, what will it be for Trump and the GOP as we now are beginning to move into the midterm election cycle? Well, remember, this is the reason that we believe that the Republican Party didn't actively participate in the idea of a commission or a real bipartisan committee that that uh, they would have actually appointed people to, because what their feeling was is that this thing would go on. And then just as Republicans were trying to get ahead of steam to take on Democrats in the midterm elections, all this stuff would be relitigated again. And I think that their fear is is real because the, the Republicans have had a year to disassociate themselves from Donald Trump. They've had a year almost to say, this is ridiculous. This isn't what we stand for. This guy's out. We're never going to have him as our, our leader again, as our candidate. But they haven't done that. Not only that, there are people, including uh, David Perdue, the former senator from Georgia, who's running again on the basis of the fact that he would not have certified the election. Like this is actually becoming a popular thing. So Republicans are now going to have to face the reality that in public hearings and all over the news that this 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 very deliberate committee is going to get testimony from people. They're going to air testimony from people. They're going to ask very, very informed questions. They're not casting in the dark anymore. That's the funny thing, right? Between Meadows book and these text messages and the testimony they've already got, they actually know what the case is. 
And they're going to be able to present that in a way that the American public, and by the way, a way that the Mueller investigation hearings never succeeded in doing, right? The Mueller investigation, I'm an old financial journalist. It was like the Enron trial. It was too too confusing to most people. It's like, your point is valid. There are a few key things that you need to know, and that's all you need to know to understand that these people were planning an insurrection and they were undermining democracy. Let that play out in front of people. And then let people, not Democrats, because I think most Democrats understand this now, but let Republicans, good thinking Republicans understand that you may not be happy with Democratic policies right now. You may think they're too far left. All that's fine. There's only one side to be on right now. It's either you're in favor of democracy or you're not. It's a binary choice right now. It's not about the Democratic Party or the Republican Party. It's that these guys were undermining democracy actively in the name of the party that you you claim to support. Now is your time to leave. Now form another party. I don't care. I don't need everybody to become uh, left of center. I don't need any of that stuff. I, I would like good debate. But Republicans have got to hear that this stuff was as bad as people said it was. Sky is not necessarily falling, but people in positions of authority undermined a sacred trust to uphold democracy, an oath that they swore. We don't take these oaths seriously, but we hope people uphold them, and they didn't, and you need to know that. So I think there's real value in doing this, and I think it's a real opportunity. If I were a Republican or conservative in this country, I would say this is my opportunity to say that doesn't represent us. We are not that. We have other things to do. We need to move on. To hell with these guys. Throw them over the boat and move on. Amen to that. Now, here's something that's interesting. The revelation that both Sean Hannity and Laura Ingraham, and it is pronounced Ingraham, I spoke to the Midas brothers, the Mycellus brothers, yes, a Midas touch, they had her brother on who said it was Ingraham, and the oh. fact that Laura right. is actually a neo-Nazi, um, texted Meadows to tell the president to stop the violence and call off the protesters is an absolutely interesting development, in my opinion. First and foremost, it's a confirmation from the propaganda arm of the GOP that the insurrection actually happened. Hannity is now up in arms, and he and Ingraham's communication, uh, that he and Ingraham's communications were released, calling it a smear campaign. How does this affect them with their MAGA viewers, and what are the optics for them in sending those messages? So I, I don't know much about Laura Ingraham. I didn't even know about the pronunciation of her name. So I don't know about the I don't know what her connections are or sympathies, where they lie. Uh, but I don't know. I think they're in a weird world. Right. Those two. I don't know that it hurts them. I'm, I'm a little surprised if those communications went out on my name. I would be either insisting that they're not true if they were not true or, or something else. But if you actually said them, if you actually wrote that stuff, then I think it's probably more important that you come out to the country and say, this is what you knew to be happening. You saw it. You realized it was out of hand. You know that you had influence over the president of the United States at the time, and you decided to use that influence. That would actually, I'm not going to say it's going to make these two a hero, but it would actually say that, oh, you actually have a working conscience. You, you might have been on the right side of history, or you might have at least been trying to be on the right side of history, notwithstanding that after that, you continue to defend Donald Trump and his, uh, his actions. I, I don't think anything hurts them. Look at what's happening at Fox News. People are leaving because they realize that those people control the narrative at Fox News. For all the discussion that we've had over the last few years about Fox changing and, and, and the, the, the Suns doing things differently than Rupert Murdoch and, and, and Roger Ailes, they they're they're feeding this beast. So I don't think for uh, Sean and Laura that this this fundamentally hurts them. Look at their numbers. I mean, people really 
really listen to what they say. And I just think if I had that kind of sway over uh, a group of Americans who was very, very frustrated about what was going on, I would use that power for good. I would say, I hear you. I get you. I can empathize with your concerns. They're valid. Let's figure out a real way to solve these problems as opposed to just inflame people into violence and anti-democratic behavior. That's not going to solve any of their viewers' problems. And I wish their viewers understood that. The problem is that is their viewers. And the reason that Sean and Laura are up in arms and so, you know, um, upset about the release of these text messages is because if their viewers do now feel that, Sean is a turncoat or Laura's a turncoat. And then they start contacting Fox and telling Fox or stopping to watch the shows. All of a sudden, what happens? Now they're fired. Sean makes like 30 million a year. I don't even know what Laura makes, but Sean's making 30 a year. He didn't give a shit about democracy. He doesn't care about whether or not a police officer or officers or people were killed. What the hell? This is this is this is playing to the audience. And their audience is exactly the people who don't want to hear that he was telling them to call off the insurrection. Their audience wants the insurrection. They wanted to see people get hurt. They wanted to see the taking of the Capitol. This is all about money for both of them. There's another way, right? There's another way. There's a way of saying to people who are that audience, I get it. I get what you're mad about. There's all sorts of reasons why people in America should be mad right now. Be mad at the right people. Uh, you know, do that the right way. Working against your own interests by suppressing democracy was never going to be the answer. And and I, 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 I will never get my head around why people who call themselves journalists thinks that's the right thing to do or people who have sway over other people think that that's the right thing to do. This will come back and bite you. If you do things that are undemocratic, right now you might be on the right side of it. One day you won't be. So I, the whole thing, that part of things is very disappointing to me. Right, but I don't think Sean would ever call himself a journalist because he knows he's not. And I think he's actually stated that he's not. But just moving forward for a second, speaking with the eminent Princeton professor, Eddie Glau Jr., you quoted him as saying, and I quote, we tend to think of January 6th as this bounded moment. It began, it happened, it ended. But what if the insurrection is ongoing? This is really an important point. If you would, unpack for me and my listeners, if you, if you can, this notion that the insurrection has never stopped. Yeah. And, and there's some great writing on this in the in, in the last month alone, uh, the degree to which this is an active beast. Right. We we do think about it. I think a lot of people think about it, including people who were you know glued to MSNBC for the last four years because Donald Trump was such an active thing that they were watching it in real time. He did spend a lot of time last year talking about how the voting was going to be problematic, even though there was no evidence uh, that that was going to be the case, except that that he was making his own postmaster general do in terms of uh, delaying mail. Uh, so so. So he created the expectation. Uh, he was with uh, he was with um, uh, uh, Chris Wallace on Fox, where he said, you know, even if I, I if I lose the election, I, I may not uh, you know, I may not concede. So he set us up for all of this stuff. Then it happened. The election happens. It all happened. And then they, they pick up this January 6th thing because he had people working on it. There are still people working on ways in which Donald Trump can either be president. Who was it who, who talked about Donald Trump becoming Speaker of the House the other day? It's all a ridiculous fantasy. But why give up the fuel that that that? you know, fueled this insurrection. That's the problem. Whether that's a growing base or a shrinking base, it's a base. It's a lot of people. It's more people than generally speaking have supported candidates in the past. So there's a lot of energy here. They're, they have found 
Trump's people and others have found the weaknesses in our system. They have found that you'll have an Alexander Vindman who will stand up. You'll have a, a, a Brad Raffensperger in Georgia who will stand up to a, a threat or a, a phone call. But the system itself is not built to do that. So now you have a bunch of people who are working overtime to find flaws in the system to allow undemocratic things to happen. You saw what happened in Arizona. They, they had this fraud it and everybody else followed. Uh, they sent people from Pennsylvania to watch how they were doing it to see if they can do it in their state. Pennsylvania is going to be the next hotbed. So this insurrection, this this soft underbelly of democracy has been discovered. And that's what people are targeting. That's why I think it, it's it's important to not see January 6th as a, wow, that's weird. That happened. Thank God it didn't go the wrong way and nobody died and they didn't overturn the election. And now Trump's gone. To think about it that way, Eddie makes that point, is just flawed because what it does is it takes down your alarms. It takes down your defenses. You don't think you have to be alert to this anymore. We have to be more alert to it now because the only thing that's going to happen next time, Michael, is it's going to be done smarter. Someone's not going to make the stupid mistakes they made this time. There are a lot of stupid mistakes that they made leading up to and after January 6th, including possibly the writing of Mark Meadows' book. But there, somebody else who's smarter says, I can figure this out. I'm going to do it right next time. Yep, this is the playbook. You know, um, Ali, as we're now finishing up the hour and the conversation, I have one last question for you. And it's obvious on a totally different topic, because I know that you were in Kentucky um, recently, yeah. and you were doing your reporting. So I want to talk about for just one uh, one quick second uh, the tornadoes in Kentucky. Um, as you literally just returned from being there in the aftermath of this, I mean, horrific, horrific disaster. I see it on yeah. television. My heart goes out to these people. I, I don't even know. I wouldn't even know where to start. It just looks like, you know, yeah. it looks like my bedroom when I was a kid, you know, uh, trying to find, you know, uh, you know my, my favorite T-shirt or something and everything goes all yeah. over the place. If you would, describe for me what it's like there on the ground. How are the people, how are they doing, how are they coping with this devastation it, it looks like a war zone, first of all. It looks like a bomb went off. It did not look like a tornado. I've covered tornadoes. I've covered a lot of hurricanes. It looks like something entirely different. The power and the uh, the scope of this thing was, was amazing. But in past tornadoes, I've been there. Often the news gets there much faster than people return to their homes for obvious reasons. So we're there when people first go back to their homes. In this case, it was Sunday morning. Uh, and people were walking because the danger had passed and they could go back and, you know, have the day. And people would go in and they would, you know, there's just piles of rubble. There'd be no house or most of the house was gone and they'd start moving a piece of rubble or they'd find some belonging and they'd, they'd take it and put it in their car or their truck. So that's what people do. So when we talk about the strength of the human spirit, people often ask me, what's the, what's the most interesting interview you had? And they're expecting me to name somebody famous. But it's not. It's always people like that. I spent my day just interviewing people, talking to people, and they are the best interviews because they are the manifestation of the strength of the human spirit. They go back. Almost all is lost, except they have their lives and they're very grateful for that. And they're going to clean up and they're going to rebuild. And they say it. And some, most times they do rebuild, by the way. Sometimes it, it's overwhelming and sometimes you lose too much. But that's what that's what the human mind does. They say, we will fix this. We will come back. And that's what I saw people doing. So the loss of life is tragic. The uh, the scale of it, the devastation is, is unbelievable. I had conversations with a lot of elected people, Democrats and Republicans, for one time in five years. There was no politics in the discussion, which was amazing. But people are strong. 
And and that's what I witnessed on on Sunday uh, and on Monday, just watching people be strong, go back into their ruined lives and say, I will rebuild. So, Michael, you know, because you've had some tough times, um, I just think it's a lesson to all of us that where we have our breath, uh, we will rebuild. Yeah. And God bless them. I'll tell you, it's um, I mean, like I said, I watch it on television and my heart, my heart just breaks for each and every one of them. I could care less political affiliation, whether you're a Trump supporter or not. Right. My heart goes out to it's each better. and every one of them, you know, and um, Ali, let me thank you for joining me uh, again on Maya Culpa. Um, fascinating conversation and always appreciate you and your wisdom. My friend, thank you for having me again. See you soon. And now for today's mea culpa. In reading these texts from Hannity and Ingraham, we have for the first time tangible proof how Fox's marquee personalities knowingly fucking lie to their audience about the January 6th insurrection. On most occasions, the right has enough of the propaganda machine to create and disseminate their own reality. Trump and his cohort's motto should be if you say something loud enough, it will eventually become the truth. That's what happened with January 6th. The whitewash of what happened started almost immediately. The fact that later that night, after imploring the president to tell the rioters to go home, Ingraham was busy blaming Antifa and leftist crisis actors. Under no circumstances could Trump be made to look bad. By exposing such duplicity, the committee is also building a picture of the cowardice, the dishonesty, and for-profit propagandizing by media personalities and Republican lawmakers bought into Trump's personality cult, which shored up the twice-impeached president during multiple assaults on the Constitution while he was in office. The same Make America Great Again industrial complex is now powering Trump's preparations for a new presidential run, which could threaten American political traditions even more seriously in 2024. With this in mind, the committee is uncovering not only Trump's transgressions in a historic purge against bedrock American political values, but evidence of his enduring power in the Republican Party and among his compliant, propagandistic, conservative media enablers. It's underscoring the fact that far from ending on January 6th, the threat to democracy that Trump represents builds by the day. Voters may decide that this is all insufficient to disqualify the former president from another shot at the White House, but they won't be able to say that they weren't warned. And thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. And it's written and produced by Jimmy Jelinek. Executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, myself, Michael Cohen, and Phil Alberstadt. Our editor is Lisa Orkin. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Mea culpa, nothing but the truth.